Well, it's good to see everybody today. Happy holidays, as you can see all around us here. We are entering into that festive season in our culture where we celebrate um, Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, and it's all a reminder uh, that uh, the Lord has really blessed us. A lot to be thankful for this holiday season. Um, well, as you heard in the reading of the Word of God there, um, there is a reference here to a covenant that is contingent upon the death of the one who made it, of the mediator, really. And if you have an ESV, right away you departed from the reading that Pastor Chris read because you have something different. So we're up against a little bit of a translation difference here. And really, uh, one of the most difficult texts in the book of Hebrews uh, to decipher in terms of what is the proper translation, and therefore, what is the proper interpretation of verses 16 and 17 in terms of the covenant and that Greek word that is mentioned there, uh, diatheke is the Greek word for covenant, but uh, the ESV and almost every other translation translates it as either will or testament. And uh, I am going to argue for the reading of the NASB which I think, I'm not taking the reading of the NASB because I am an NASB guy, or because I like the NASB, but because I think it's actually right. Uh, really difficult. Kept me up all night last night, just diving in uh, to this controversy. But um, before we do that, let us pray, and then we will begin looking at this awesome and very, very important passage of Scripture. So let's pray together. Ask the Lord to bless our time. Heavenly Father, we do sanctify this time now for your operative work to be among us here, that by your Spirit, Lord, you would be pleased to bless us, to give us illumination of the text of Scripture, to grant us application as your Word uh, convicts us and encourages us and strengthens us and instructs us and informs us, Lord. And we are in this passage of Scripture that is so pivotal to our redemption as we consider and think about the sacrificial death of our mediator and our high priest, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you again for the fact that we have such a high priest that sympathizes with our weakness. And it is enough, Lord, that he would sacrifice his life for us, but also that he would live life with us and that he would sympathize with us at our weakest times. That indeed is mercy that is as endless as the sea. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us an understanding mind and give us a heart, Lord, to appropriate what your word is telling us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Really a two-part message because there is no way that I can go from 15 to 22 in 45 minutes. Oh, and by the way, I know you all are hungry. <laughs> and I told somebody right before I got up here, I said, you know, I actually have two extra pages of notes today. So, I don't know what that means for you other than that uh, this is all for your endurance. And the book of Hebrews says you are in need of endurance, and uh, especially on our Thanksgiving potluck. Um, but we are going to split this up into a couple of portions. And, uh, and uh, let me begin by stressing that what this text is going to give us is it's going to give us different aspects 
of our redemption. And I want to begin by looking at the promise uh, that is made here by the mediator. You see the reference to the mediator in verse 15. It says, for this reason, he is a mediator of a new covenant. So right there and then, the text is sort of connecting us back to what was said in verses, well, all the way back to verse Uh, 11, really going all the way to verse 14 in terms of Jesus' blood and the fact that he has obtained for us eternal redemption. And it says here that he is able to cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then he says, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. That is the purpose. That is the reason why he is our mediator, because of his sacrificial death and the efficacy of that death to cleanse us of our conscience. Now, the book of Hebrews focuses on this idea of mediator more than any other book of the New Testament. And um, it, it, it actually brings up the issue of mediator several times, and each time from a bit of a different perspective. Jump back to chapter 8, and you'll see the first time that it's referenced, and that's in 8 verse 6, where Jesus is mediator as a uh, Uh, that ministry that he has, which is superior to the Old Testament priests. Uh, The the, the author says in verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Now, it's also going to stress the eschatology of our mediator. If you look at uh, chapter 12, for example, this is a magnificent verse, but this stresses the work of the mediator and what that has to do with our eschatology. The idea that in the work of Christ as our mediator, he has already inaugurated for us, if you would, the age to come. I guess that's a way that we can say it. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion. And the reason why I say inaugurated eschatology, because I know you guys are all following me, right? Inaugurated eschatology means something that's already begun. And that's why the present tense is used in Hebrews 12, 22. You have already come, he says, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. He says, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, you have already come, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of better things than the blood of Abel, than the blood of Abel. But in chapter 9, the concept concept of Jesus and his mediatorial work comes in the context of the, the power that it has to obtain redemption and to efficaciously cleanse us of our sin. And that is what verse 12 says. It was not through the blood of bulls and goats or goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That's the work of the meteor, and that's the focus in the text today. Now, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, but striking that Jesus is also the sacrificial lamb of the new covenant. And that is no surprise to you if you have read carefully your Old Testament. 
Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 32, because I think in Exodus 32, what we have presented for us is a typological picture of a covenant mediator who is prepared to die for the people. Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse 30, this is right on the heels of the fact that the children of Israel had just made a golden calf to worship. In other words, this is a, a total breach of covenant. This is a total act of idolatry on the part of Israel. And now Moses is going to come in to intercede. And listen what it says, verse 30. Now the next day Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord, perhaps I can pray for you. No. He says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. That's remarkable language. There's no altar at the top of the mountain. There's no sacrificial lamb up there. And yet, he's getting ready to have an encounter with God where he is going to offer atonement. Then Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of the book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did and the calf which Aaron had made. But there you see Moses offering himself as an atoning sacrifice on behalf of the people, so much so that Moses says, for their sake... Blot me out. The promise of a mediator is the promise to do what Moses could not do. Though he wanted to do it, he was not able to do it. Though Moses would, would have given his own blood, would have given up his own redemption, would have been blotted out of God's own book, he could not because Moses was not a sufficient mediator for the people of God. Moses himself needed somebody to be blotted out on his behalf. And that's exactly what is promised to us in our mediator. He has become the mediator of a better covenant because it's built on better promises. Now, so much work to be done here, but let us move on from the promise of the mediator and all that that entails, to the promise of that redemption, because what is entailed in that is our blessing, our, uh, the fact that we receive this inheritance that it talks about. It says, he, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death, now you've got to really latch on to that word death, <laughs> since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who've been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. So you see what's at stake. There is an eternal inheritance that is at stake here. He makes reference to the sins that were committed under the first covenant. So what he's saying here is that there were 
that, that, that the sins that were committed under the Mosaic covenant are sti- still need to be dealt with in a sense. Oh, the children of Israel did, in fact, retroactively look upon or fu- looked upon the future sacrifice of Christ, and then that sacrifice is retroactively applied to the Old Testament saints. But the death to make that efficacious still needed to occur. And now, in the new covenant, that death has come. That death has come. The redemption was meant to free them. It was for the redemption. A death has taken place for what? For the redemption. You see that? That means to free them from their obligations to the covenant, to bear the curse of the old covenant. Now, another Old Testament text that I need you to turn to is Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30 beginning in verse 15, because there we kind of see where is all this language of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant? Where is that all coming from? Primarily, it's coming from the fact that the Old Testament people broke the covenant with God, and uh, God had promised them dreadful things if they'd break in that covenant. Beginning in verse 15, it says, see, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, that your Lord God may bless you in the land, that's the inheritance, where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, turns away and you will not obey but are drawn away and worship other gods to serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not, you will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing uh, the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you. This is where it's all coming from, this idea that upon obedience, they would inherit the promises namely the promised land. And so, in the Bible, or excuse me, in the book of Hebrews, where the language of inheritance is mentioned, this is what is being talked about. The language to inherit the land. And over and over again, in the book of Hebrews, he, he makes reference to this land to this rest. And that's what's at stake if you go back to chapter 4 when it says, they will not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he had said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. And that, of course, is talking about entering into the land of Canaan because It says that Joshua did not give them that rest. Verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, how was Joshua to give them rest but by entering into the promised land? 
that means that that inheritance of inheriting Canaan was just a symbol. It was just a type. It was just a shadow. It was just a picture of the eternal inheritance that remains for the people of God. That is what the old covenant people were ultimately looking forward to. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 just to see that. That the, the, the old covenant people themselves were looking for a greater inheritance than just a physical, geographical land, a lo- location. They were looking for a heavenly country, we could say. Look at uh, Hebrews 11, verse 13. It says, all of these died in faith. And so there is faith in the old covenant. They all died believing. He says, but they died in faith without receiving the promises But having seen them and having welcomed them from a a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. So uh, obviously they could have returned to Canaan. They could have returned to Mesopotamia. They could return to their homeland, wherever that was. He says... But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them to, to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Jump down to verse 39, Hebrews 11, verse 39. It says, all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. In other words, what this is all telling us is that only through the work of the new covenant and the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, will Old Testament saints and New Testament saints reach their eschatological perfection, their goal, their telos, their full inheritance. That's why the people were ultimately looking forward to a greater resurrection. And now we are all going to be glorified with them. Old covenant, new covenant, one people of God, glorified together under the work of the new covenant mediator. But what is the purpose of, what is the the purpose of our redemption? I have three practical things that I want to bring out and drawing them right out of the text because part of the new covenant, I believe, is meant to humble us, it is meant to assure us, and it is meant to satisfy us. The very first thing and why I say the new covenant is meant to humble us, look at the text again. It says here, a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant so that, you can add, those who have been called. See that? People often miss that phrase, and I can't tell you, but commentary after commentary after commentary just glossed over that word, called. And they went on to more important things. (laughs) But that is absolutely essential to who is going to get the inheritance. Who will get the inheritance? It is not those who have done a certain amount of good works. It is not those who have lived a religious life. It is not those who have somehow earned their favor before the eyes of God. It is primarily those who have been 
called. And obviously, you know what this is in reference to. This is in reference to the sovereign call of God. When we were like Abram, dead in our sin, blinded by our idolatry, worshiping all the gods of our fathers, there was a sovereign call that came. And that sovereign call is what led you and I to faith, if you are in the faith. It is on the basis of that call. And because of that calling, guess what? Boasting is excluded. Romans chapter 3, verse 27 says that. After showing that it has nothing to do with works, the Apostle Paul says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Because of works? No, but because of faith. In other words, faith is the proof that we are saved by the sovereign call of God, not the opposite. Faith is not a work. Faith is not uh, something that man generates out of his own initiative, his own will, his own volition. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 tells us faith is a gift. It has been granted to us to be able to even believe in the first place. And we can go on and on. But do you understand how this strips away all boasting? We have no capacity to boast in our inheritance. Who is it that makes us to differ? The one who has called us by his marvelous sovereign grace. That is the only reason why we are in the number, the church of the firstborn, why we will be enrolled in heaven. To quote the old hymn, why when the roll is called up yonder, we will be there. It is not because you were a good little Christian boy or girl. It is not because you, you spent your life around Christian things and Christian people and somehow salvation rubbed off on you sort of through a spiritual osmosis or something like that. No, in fact, it is because of God's initiative, God's calling. And it's all because of the work of the mediator. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, it is because of the work of the mediator that the Apostle Paul says, look, there is no possibility for me to boast in anything. This should be the defining verse of our lives, at least one of them. Galatians 6.14 Paul says, but may it never be that I boast, except, it's not that you don't boast in anything, but we don't boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you boast in the cross, brothers and sisters, if you really, really boast in the cross, then several deaths have occurred in your life. Look at what it says. He says, through the cross, the world has been crucified to me. See that? So you have the death of the cross, and now you have the death of the world to the believer who is identified with the cross. And now he says, and I to the world. So if you have really truly been humbled by the sovereign call of God. What that means is that the cross is the basis for everything that you can boast in. And therefore, you will boast in nothing other than the cross of Christ. And because of that, the world is dead to you. 
The world no longer, all of its allurements and all of its enticements have become strangely dim. But it also assures us, the new covenant does, it humbles us because, no, it's based on sovereign calling. But it also assures our hearts. It's almost as if God has to break us down before he can build us up again. Look at the, uh, the assurance that is uh, presented for us here in Hebrews chapter 9. Again, verse 15 says, A death has taken place. For what? For the possibility of redemption. No, my dear friends, this is indicative language. For the redemption, matter of fact, redemption, absolute redemption, the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. And when he says that, that the transgressions committed under the first covenant, he's not seeking to exclude us who were not under the first covenant. No, he's lumping us all together. He's not looking to, he's not looking to forget them. That's what he's doing. He's saying, the author of Hebrews is, his readers and everyone that came before, this is how the new covenant applies to them. We know how it applies to us. But this is how the old covenant people are accounted for in here. But this is a redemption that is 100% effective. Going back up to verse 12. It is not through the blood of goats and calves. Remember, blood of goats and calves, if there's anything you remember about that, that the theology of Hebrews is trying to teach us is that 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 blood is not effective. For what? It is not effective ultimately for salvation. It is not effective for internal cleansing, right? He says, but he, Jesus, entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. See, he obtained it. He actually won it. He actually gained this redemption of you and I so that we can be set free, so that we can go free. That's the whole purpose of it. That's the whole purpose here. Every promise of God is made good in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 all of God's promises is our yes and amen in Him. And um, therefore, our confidence, our hope is absolutely concrete. And it's practical too, because what it means is that God is here for us in our trials, just like the theology of Hebrews is telling us. Our high priest is here to sympathize with us. You having a hard time in the Christian life right now. You're going through trials. You're falling into sin. You're struggling with the flesh. You're battling with the devil. I know that's not really a popular thing to talk about in reform circles, right? (laughs) Because we don't talk to the devil. We don't acknowledge the devil, right? We don't pray against the devil. (laughs) That sounds kind of wacky. But that's our adversary. The sin, the flesh, the devil, the world, these are our adversaries. And what the new covenant promises us is that God can be trusted in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our afflictions, in the midst of our persecutions, in the midst of our hardships. God can be trusted. Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.12, this is a one to hold on to. 
For this reason, I also suffer these things. That's the context of persecution. But I am not ashamed. Would we be tempted to be ashamed if we were persecuted? Hmm. If we went to jail for Jesus, if you got your possessions confiscated, Hebrews chapter 10, if they took away your house, they took away your car, they took away your business, that's happening right now. You heard of the uh, Christian bakers, right? They're being fined for refusing to celebrate evil. They're being told, you got to shut it down. We're taking away your livelihood. Do something else or pay a fine. Pay enough fines. Don't pay the fines. Go to jail. I mean, this is where we're at. And I think it's easy for someone under that sort of burden of persecution to feel ashamed to feel outcasted. But Paul says, I am not ashamed. Why? Because I know who I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. We are to commit our life to him because he is able to guard it for that day. So it has an eschatological force as well. But there's two additional points that are rooted in the exegesis here. Number one is the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. A death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. It is the assurance that we have been redeemed. The ransom price has been paid, and now the way into the throne of grace has been opened to us. And secondly, It demonstrates that God's redemptive purposes have been fulfilled in the death of the mediator. Look at 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. I could just read it to you. You know this verse because it's one of the only places where Paul, I think the only place where Paul uses the word mediator, and you probably have it memorized. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, that is the man Christ Jesus, who, a verse goes on, (laughs) who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Anytime the Bible engages in the language of time, 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 proper time, fullness of the time, it is saying all of God's redemptive purposes Man has his story, but God has his, right? And God's story surrounds the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when he died on the cross, it was at the proper time. What is the proper time? The time in which all of God's promises, all of God's prophecies, all of his predictions surrounding the Messiah, surrounding the state of Israel, surrounding the state of his people, all of those things would come into perfect alignment and Christ would come in at the precise, redemptive, prophetic time period of God's timetable and fulfill everything that was determined for him in the covenant of redemption which is the eternal covenant of the Trinity. You may have to go back now and listen to that last sentence a few times. Get it in you. Get it in you. Because what we're seeing in the gospel is the outworking of the divine counsel of a Trinitarian God. But it also satisfies us. It humbles us. It assures us. But it also satisfies us. Turn with me in your Bibles 
to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Because we're talking about eternal inheritance. It's not an inheritance that you'll inherit and then you're going to have to leave it behind. I've done enough funerals to know you don't attach a U-Haul to a hearse. Right? You leave everything behind. You can't take anything with you. But this is an inheritance you don't leave behind. As a matter of fact, it's waiting for you. <laughs> Peter said it the best. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy that we sang about, He has caused us to be born again. Talk about sovereign call. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. In order for what purpose? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and it will not fade away. Where's Peter's pulling this from? Through the resurrection of the dead. Psalm 16. He will not allow His Holy One to see corruption. Right? Quoted by the apostles all over the place in the book of Acts. And what for? To prove the Messiah will not rot in the grave, but He will rise again triumphantly for your salvation, for your justification. And guess what? That's Psalm 16, verse 10. Psalm 16, verse 11 says... At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our inheritance through his resurrection. That's what this is talking about. And our inheritance does not fade away. So therefore, it is infinitely satisfying. Another reason why it's infinitely satisfying is because this is not a transfer of inheritance. This is not Jesus who rightly owns the inheritance, transferring the inheritance to us. No, no, no. This is an inheritance that we share. It is a shared inheritance. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Doesn't that satisfy you? <laughs> I mean, nothing else can be more satisfying than to hear we are going to get what he gets. We are going to be where he's at. We're going to have an unfading inheritance with Christ. Let me give you some verses on that. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we're the children of God. And if we're children, heirs also. Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. That is the essence of our inheritance. Glory. That's the essence of our inheritance. Glory. That's the reason why a missionary can go into a very dark part of the world and know that he's going there for the purpose of laying down his life. As a matter of fact, I have a friend, and I've told many of you about this, but he spent some time in Brazil training missionaries. After five years of training them, they buy a one-way ticket into a closed Muslim nation never to return again. And they do that because they know glory is ahead of them. And they may lay it down in Yemen or in, you know, 
Pakistan or in Afghanistan or in Saudi Arabia or in Morocco or in Iran or, or in London. No, just as bad now, right? But they know what's ahead for them. They've tapped into this truth. They're fellow heirs with Christ. Their inheritance cannot fade away under Muslim persecution. It cannot be defiled. You can't touch it. You can't touch it. You could kill the body, as Jesus said, but as Jesus went on to say, and you can't do anything after that. (laughs) Right? Only crazy people talk like this, right? Jesus, in the eyes of the world, was a bit crazy. He said, look, what can men... Stop fearing man. That's what he says. Oh, and how full of fear we are, aren't we? We're so fearful to do something as radical as what some of those missionary brothers and sisters are doing. And we have all these qualifications about what you got to be called and, you know, (laughs) whatever. Just admit it, we're afraid to die. Jesus was not afraid to die. I don't think the Apostle Paul was afraid to die. Matter of fact, he had what the world would consider to be quite a morbid fascination, almost a love affair with the prospect of death. You ever read Philippians? To live is Christ. Paul says to die is hitting the lottery. (laughs) Who thinks like that? Only someone that understands their inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. Nothing that the world can do to take it away. This is all because of the power of the death. Back to Hebrews chapter 9. A death has taken place. I really think exegetically we're supposed to latch on to that. A death has taken place. I think that's the point. Because look at verses 16 and 17. Now we go from the promise of our redemption to the principle of our redemption, which is illustrated right here in the nature of biblical covenants. Now, let me just introduce this verse. Well, let me read it first. Let's introduce it by reading it. It says, For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Without blood. But um, if you notice, the end of verse 17 says, um, excuse me, the verse uh, uh, 18 says, therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Uh, That's why verse 17 says, for a covenant is valid only when men are dead. See, death is necessary for the, 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 the diatheke to be valid. So the big question comes, what does the word diatheke mean? Because most of you, or many of you, are sitting there with your Bible looking down at it, and you see the word will or testament, depending on your translation. King James people, testament. ESV people, the elect standard version people, you have will in your Bible, right? NIV people, you're going to have will in your Bible. And so the reason they do this is because they say, well, what's being depicted here doesn't really accurately describe all biblical covenants. Now, I am of the position that the word should be translated diatheke. And a matter of fact, Scott Hahn 
in an article entitled A Broken Covenant and a Curse of Death, has written the finest exposition of this passage I've ever read. And in there, he argues for all sorts of things. But one of the things that he argues for is that in Hellenistic Greek, going back to the time of Hebrews, the, the author of this book, there really wasn't anything like a will and testament the way we know it today in modern 21st century nomenclature. We don't really have anything in Hellenistic Greek that mirrors precisely not only what we have, but what the text is stipulating here. Because a will was in force while the person lived in Hellenistic Greek. So there comes the difficulty. And then some people say, well, but at the same time, in biblical covenants, there was no need for the death of the one who made it, was there? And so what I would suggest to you is that what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's pulling on the language of the Septuagint more than he's pulling from the language of Greco-Roman Hellenistic culture to prove that biblical covenants, in fact, do require the death of the person who is involved in the covenant, the one who made it. And so, what do you have in the symbolism of covenants like in Genesis 15, where God is said to split the animals in half as symbol of death? Right? And he passes through the parts that were split in half as a symbol of a malediction, self-malediction, which means you will suffer, you will pay the penalty, you will incur the wrath of a breach of covenant. And guess what? That covenant was not in force until that death was symbolized. And so what I take it to mean is that when it says here that a person has to die... Where there is a covenant, there must of necessity be the death of the one that made it. I think what that means is that the death is symbolically represented through the act or the ritual of covenant making exemplified in Genesis 15 and also in Jeremiah chapter 34 where God reminds the children of Israel that they too had split the animals in half, and they deserved to die because they had broken his covenant, because their death was pictured in the act. And um, Ezekiel 17 says, if a person breaks the covenant, shall he escape? That's what Ezekiel asks. No, he cannot escape. Break the covenant, someone must pay the penalty. That is the death that was represented in the splitting of the animals. And that is exactly, I think, what the, the author's point is. Because if you look at verse 18, he says, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. See, inaugurated without blood means that the death symbolized uh, through the death of animals was representative of the, of the mediator willing to die for the people. The one entering into covenant was willing to die, and God reminds the children of Israel, you are ready to die because you've broken the covenant, because that's what you said when you participated in this covenant agreement. Jesus, which you know, okay, so that's the sort of the parentheses, 16 and 17, just an example. This is what's required in covenants, but you know the point. The point is someone has to die. 
And we know who died. It was Jesus. And why did he die? He died as a sacrificial lamb. He died for the transgressions of the people. He died in a way that Moses wanted to die but could not die because he was not qualified to die. But Jesus is qualified to die. And he did die. He died and by virtue of his death, this covenant is now ratified. In other words, it is established. It is confirmed. It is solid. And the death of Christ proves it. And because that covenant is ratified, well, then we will experience the blessings of the covenant. Maybe scripture, interpreting scripture is even a better way of going about it. Turn with me, last of all, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. There we see the blessings that result from Jesus' covenantal death. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. And that's not the end of the story. Freely bestowed on us. Not the end of the story. You will miss the story if you don't read that little tiny phrase. In the beloved. The gospel is in there. <laughs> that is the gospel right there. In the beloved. In him. We have redemption through his blood. See that? The absolute necessity for the blood, the death. The blood just means the death. The blood just means the cross. The blood just means the sacrificial offering of Jesus, just like Hebrews. The forgiveness of our trespasses, just like Hebrews. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. This is what we're looking at in Hebrews is a lavishing of salvation upon those that God will call. We are called. And because we are called, we will inherit the earth. Because we are called, that means we will be fellow heirs with Christ. And because we are called, that means we have no occasion to boast. All we can do is serve God, as Hebrew says, in awe and in reverence. In what? In grateful, broken-hearted obedience to God. That's it. That's what the new, covenant, the new covenant should produce in our lives. Now, I know we're hungry, so let's pray and ask God to seal these truths into our hearts. And as we fellowship and discuss these things, we pray that God would vivify our lives, that he would illuminate our hearts, that he would cause us to see just how much he's lavished this on us. Father, Lord, we do thank you for the, the redemption that your son Jesus has obtained for us. We thank you that because of his death, the new covenant is fully ratified, that the new covenant has been established no longer on the weak and insufficient blood of animals, but on the pure, sinless powerful, precious blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we were not ransomed 
with gold or silver. We were not ransomed with precious metals. We were not ransomed with the economy of this world. But we were ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us now. Help us as a result of this to appreciate all that we have inherited, to look forward to that inheritance with confidence, with assurance, and also, Lord, to acknowledge that our satisfaction is not found in anything that we can inherit in this world, but is only found in the inheritance which will never fade away, which can never perish, and cannot be defiled. So, Lord, we say with the Apostle Peter, we look forward to new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.